This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most, my beautiful audience all around the world. I get emails from you in different continents, places, and it just excites me that the miracle of this internet and our shared interest in the things that matter most has brought us together and we keep growing. So I appreciate you. Today's guest is a professor of organizational studies at the University of Sydney Business School, where he teaches and he researches organizational change, management, innovation, and the critical understandings of capital and the political economy. He's also co-authored a very powerful book. There's a new edition of it, Organizing Responses to Climate Change, The Politics of Mitigation, Adaptation, and Suffering. Wow. Deep. What an honor to finally welcome to the show and to our family, Mr. Christopher Wright. Thank you so much for coming on. By the way, all the way from Australia. Thanks, Paul, and thanks for the opportunity to, to be on your show. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Christopher, have you been alarmed by how quickly and also how violently the climate collapse has been unfolding? It seems like it's really accelerating and it's happening faster and it's more intense than even the scientists predicted. Yeah, it, it is It is pretty um, jaw-dropping what we've seen in even just in the last few years. Uh, you may have heard that in Australia in the summer of 2019, 2020, we had what was called a black summer, where most of the east coast of the country was on fire. Um, it was it was a fire it were firestorms of unprecedented scale and ferocity um, that burned out entire communities, uh, and it, it attracted quite a bit of media attention, not only in Australia obviously, but internationally. Uh, and I think it became something of a sort of um, emblematic. Uh, example of the climate breakdown and, and of course you know we read about in Australia we read about what's happening in the Arctic and Greenland with ice loss we read about the floods in Pakistan um, the, the terrible droughts in the southwest of the US uh, so yeah the extreme weather is here now and it's the face of climate change uh, and it's it's pretty amazing uh, what we're seeing but also I think what is perhaps even more amazing is the complete political disconnect from that this sort of almost collective uh, desire to ignore what's right in our face. That's the part I can't understand because if we were ruled by aliens from a far off galaxy, it would make sense. Who cares about us? But the fact that it's right here, those fires in Australia, and my friend, my Dr. Michael Mann was down there to, to do research and write another book when all that happened. And I that doesn't wake you up, but it seems like there's one of those every couple of days and nothing's happening. What's your take on that, other than just these lobbyists and these politicians, these shills, especially like Morrison, worked for big coal in a way? Yeah, well, this is this is the key focus of our new book, and it, it's actually, the, I guess, the issue that has been driving me for the last 15 years or more in studying climate change and business, because I'm in a business school, and a lot of people say, you know, why are you studying climate change? And that's not what we do, and I try to sort of emphasize to them that this is the issue of our time. Um, and, and the issue essentially, I, I paraphrased um, that marvellous uh, American writer, Elizabeth Colbert, who had this line from one of her books um, some years ago now about it, it seems um, 
uh, incredible that a technologically advanced society could choose in essence to destroy itself, but that's sort of what we're doing. And, and that sort of um, uh, contradiction, paradox, I guess, that a civilization that can put uh, people on the moon, that uh, incredible technological advance, and yet we, as I say we, but our political and corporate leaders can't seem to mobilize the action to avert what is pretty clearly uh, an existential threat to not just the future of human civilization, but much of life on the planet. Um, and so for me, that as a social scientist, that is both horrifying, but also fascinating that there could be this disconnect that we could, that our leaders could know that this is happening and yet not choose not to do something about it. Um, for me, some of the, the recent sort of examples like uh, the expose that former US presidents, I think it was Nixon and Carter, it had advisors writing letters to them and they reproduce the actual letters, which say there's this thing called the greenhouse effect and it's based on human uh, combustion of fossil energy, producing carbon emissions, which is going to melt glaciers and ice packs. And we should do something about this. And, and yet nothing much happened. Or, or for instance, the, the ExxonMobil memos, which I think are fascinating too, that their own internal scientists were basically graphing where they thought atmospheric carbon would be uh, in 40 years time. This is back in 1980. Uh, so where would it be in 2020, 2022? And they hit it bang on, on the number. It was 415 parts per million. And that's exactly where we are. So they knew 40 or 50 years ago what was happening. Uh, and yet nothing has really done, happened to avert that path. That amazed me when those Exxon studies were leaked or produced, that they were that one. They get the best scientists. They were that accurate. And what you said earlier in your brilliant answer, it reminded me, sadly and poignantly, of meeting Carl Sagan in the 1980s. And he gave a presentation asking the question, is there intelligent life on Earth? And he talked about like if you were coming with a space probe from a faraway place. And as you got closer, first you would think, wow, they've organized, they've done this. Then they, you see that they have the technology and they realize they're destroying their atmosphere and thus they would go extinct, but they're not doing anything about it. He then produced the verdict that there really is an intelligent life on Earth, that we were advanced enough to do technology, but we couldn't process it to save ourselves like we were in denial. And this was in the 80s. Yeah, indeed. And and um, it comes back to this sort of question that we try to tease out in the book, the processes about how that has happened, how it is that. This, this powerful sort of political imaginary has been created that we can continue to burn fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas. Uh, we can continue to destroy the carbon sinks of the planet, you know, the Amazon and the major forests, the rainforests, and um, without any consequence, without any um, implications. And so what we're trying to do, I guess, is sort of analyze, well, how does it happen? And you mentioned earlier the, you know, the well-documented um, incidents of, of uh, fossil fuel lobbyists and ExxonMobil and, and all of that stuff, which has been very well documented by people like Naomi Oreskes and others. Um, what we're trying to do, though, is also point to how um, what we term a sort of a fossil fuel hegemony has been created um, over the last, well, since, I guess, World War II or possibly even before then, which is this sort of all-consuming ideology that uh, there is no alternative. We cannot question the path we're on. Uh, that, uh, you know, the assumption is that uh, global capitalism will continue to grow infinitely um, forever uh, based on fossil energy because it's defined by fossil energy, it's created by fossil energy. 
Uh, and to question that path is insane, is mad, dangerous, or for those who are trying to sort of avert where we're going, you know, the, the climate activists and environmentalists who try to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, um, they're even sort of deemed to be t possibly terrorists or, um, you know, extremists. Uh, so there is this way in which the powerful ruling ideology, the fossil fuel hegemony, basically creates uh, a boundary and says anybody who questions this uh, is is on is on the fringes and and should not be uh, encouraged or in fact should be demonised and that's I think the flip side of the lobbying is the sort of the creation of the other those who question the path. So true and but yet if I went into a fifth grade class and said can you have progressive infinite consumption on a finite resource planet they would laugh and say of course not. Yeah, indeed, and I think uh, it was a Kenneth Boulding, very famous U.S. environmental economist way back in the early 70s, uh, who's credited with that line about, you know, only madmen or economists think, you know, infinite growth on a finite planet is possible. And I use that quote all the time. And I was introduced to Boulding when I was an undergraduate in the early 80s. And it stuck with me ever since. I just thought that was such a powerful insight and so obvious. And yet it's it's sort of, you know, most neoclassical economists will just laugh you out of the room if you try to suggest there's any alternative to infinite growth. And I remember, I think, a 14-year-old Greta Thunberg at Davos saying, you're out of your minds. You believe in this fantasy of infinite growth while the planet is burning. We can't do this. And they looked at her like she was nuts. It's very bizarre. I hope we're in a simulation. That's otherwise we're in big trouble. Yeah, you wake up some mornings and you go through your Twitter feed on climate change or something. I think they call it doom scrolling. Um, and uh, you have to pinch yourself because you think this is surreal, this is mad, uh, this can't be happening, disconnect. Uh, but yeah, the, the response to Greta Thunberg is a classic example of this othering process where anybody who questions the, the dominant uh, assumptions of infinite growth, fossil fuel energy, is deemed to be an extremist, a, a mad person, um, someone who must be demonised and, and um, destroyed uh, because their ideas do go to the heart of the problem. And that's, that's, the, that's the interesting contradiction. The reason they're getting attacked so hard is because they're actually speaking a truth uh, you know, the emperor has no clothes and that, that can't be allowed to sort of uh, remain. And I would advise all the listeners to not become good friends with a whole lot of climate scientists if you want to keep your peace of mind. Like you said, the doom scrolling, I'm trying to, it's a real great challenge to stay upbeat and not let doom take over. Like, uh, again, Dr. Mann and a lot of scientists say, because if we embrace doom, we are doomed. So you have to somehow be able to ingest all the data and the trajectory, and then still keep trying to do something about it. How do you not get overrun at the barricades by that? There's a couple of things I think here. Uh, one is my belief that it's better to be aware of the scientific reality rather than put your head in the sand and pretend there is no problem. Um, I have <clears throat> I have friends in my social life who who are very much in that sort of denial camp. And um, we just have to agree not to talk about certain things because I know I'm never going to convince them. Um, but in some sense, I think, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to just uh, steam away all of this scientific reality and, 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 you know, that'd be better for my psychological makeup, perhaps. But the, the other thing is that I think uh, in my job, a lot of my work is around deliberately speaking about the climate crisis in an educational sense. So obviously I do that in my classes with my students. 
Uh, and that can become that is becoming increasingly quite a challenge in terms of how you frame that message because you don't want to put people into um, a, catat a catatonic state of eco anxiety. But um, you also want to get the, the conversation and the points out there because there is an awful lot of ignorance out there. I think deliberately constructed ignorance by the media on this issue. Um, and also almost a, a climate fatigue. Nobody wants to talk about, oh, climate change, you know, we've done to death on that. Um, and, and yet, you know, well, we've, there's a lot of discussion, but not much action. So, yeah, in terms of education uh, and public speaking and all of those sorts of things, I, I jump on every opportunity to talk about climate change. And from my perspective, what I can add is the, polit the political dimension and the, the business corporate dimension around what are the structures and institutions behind this public debate, which um, to a large extent shape how we are not engaging uh, with the climate crisis and not embracing decarbonisation and all of the things we should be doing. But can a capitalistic society run by corporations solve the grave global threat of climate change? Uh, I have my doubts. Uh, uh, we we started a project 12 years ago or more now where we looked at, I guess, what you'd term the bleeding edge of the corporate sector on climate change. And these are companies that publicly um, stated their concern around the climate crisis, uh, emphasised their role to, to lead in the fight against climate change, all that sort of things, lots of lofty rhetoric. And these are big global corporations, well-known companies, uh, four or five of them that we looked at um, from different sectors, energy, media, uh, finance, um, uh, industrial manufacturing, uh, insurance. I think that covered a lot. And um, what we did was we charted them over 10 years. We analysed how they started with this big, bold mission uh, with the CEOs coming out and saying, we're going to solve climate change. Uh, and then we tracked over time what actually happened. And it wasn't just greenwash. These were companies that, yeah, there was plenty of greenwash and marketing there, but they were also engaged in tangible practices and strategies within their firms. They were doing the whole uh, eco-efficiency thing. They were uh, changing their car fleets, changing how they got their energy renewables. A lot of, a lot of practices that are very similar to the current vogue that you see even the oil companies talking about, you know, commitments to net zero and all this sort of thing. So lots of operational efficiency improvement. Um, they were trying to encourage greater awareness of the environment and climate amongst their employees with culture change initiatives, these sorts of things, and they won awards for it and they were um, eulogised in the business press. But what happened over time, over a 10-year period, was that things would change. Um, CEOs would leave. They'd make bad investment decisions. They'd be forced out. And once the leadership would change, the top team would change, the sustainability team would go, uh, we quickly found many of these companies reverted back to what we termed then sort of business as usual, which was maximise short-term short shareholder returns. Um, and so there's an interesting sort of conversation in business corporations uh, around this idea of corporate environmentalism. This is the idea that you can have a win-win. You can actually make money, profits, shareholder returns, and uh, improve environmental outcomes. That's the sort of the rhetoric. Uh, what we found was that, yeah, that can happen on occasions, uh, but often there's a win-loss decision point. Uh, and typically profits and shareholder value come first. And then if the environment might benefit, that's great. But if it doesn't, well, that's just too bad sort of thing. And so what we found over that 10-year period was a reversion back to um, the focus on profit, shareholder returns, 
And in, in one instance, a very well-known company got written up in Harvard Business Review at the time that had been very public in um, arguing it was going to solve climate change, had reverted back to working for um, the gas fracking industry and the tar sands industry in Canada. Um, so the complete uh, converse of what they needed to be doing. They were going back into making the fossil fuel industry more efficient and effective, which is exactly what we don't need. Yeah, because fundamentally the goals are at odds. Yes. Yes, they are. Um, the, the, the nature of the economic system we live within, global capitalism, is, is predicated upon the exploitation of, of natural and human resources to create profit for shareholders. Um, and the, the issue there is that uh, there is no sort of prime directive that first and foremost the corporation will look to um, what's good for the environment and the climate. That's a sort of secondary or uh, ancillary concern possibly in, in some of these corporations. So, so the economic system is built upon profit maximization, continued growth, uh, and unfortunately, uh, the last two centuries or more, what we know as global capitalism is fundamentally underpinned by fossil energy, by coal, oil, and gas, which began at the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. So in a sense, our economic system is defined by fossil energy, uh, and that is the big problem. How can we reinvent a global economy in a very short period of time uh, that is not based upon um, uh, fossil energy as the, the prime input. It's it's a very difficult nut to crack. Since the mega transnational corporations basically run the world and control the world through the politicians in the different ways, how do we break that stranglehold that they possess? Yeah, this is the $64 million question because our, our politics has been captured not only in countries like your own and Australia and Canada and Britain. You know, you can see very clearly the influence of fossil capital in the decisions that are being made, um, uh, but also in other parts of the world, in, in developing economy and also in, in countries where um, state-owned enterprises are very powerful, so China, uh, Russia, et cetera. I mean, the Russia example in the current Ukraine crisis with the role of Gazprom is, is a great example. Um, and, and in those, in the countries we could term petrostates, countries which rely dominantly upon fossil fuel extraction um, for domestic consumption and export, and that's all of the countries I've mentioned, plus Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and others, Mexico, um, uh, there is this addiction to fossil energy, not just for their own consumption, but as a source of revenue through exports and, and what have you. Uh, and because of that economic power, that is also wielded politically. Uh, and so there's this close nexus between the state and capital around the maintenance of um, fossil fuel extraction and use. So how can that be upset? Well, we we look to examples, I guess, um, and in the book we have sort of various chapters which talk about the response to the hegemony, the counter hegemony, and that typically comes from social movements like we're seeing on the streets in, in country in Western countries like Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future. Um, it comes from uh, environmental activists putting their bodies literally on the line. You know, I think it was a report today that around 1,500 environmentalists die every year um, fighting against uh, extractive industries. Uh, and it's really only from that grassroots mobilization and uh, that that we can hope for sort of political change. And that's typically how uh, most of the advances have occurred historically. Uh, it's been through grassroots social mobilization, the right of women to vote, uh, the civil rights movement. All of those very well-known examples came from originally 
a large-scale grassroots mobilization to shift the political levers and put the pressure on politicians to change. And I guess we see that, for instance, with the, the role of Greta Thunberg, for instance. She's had a huge impact in terms of raising the profile of the climate crisis in, in the hearts of capitalism, such as Davos and those sorts of places. Yeah, it feels like nothing short of a, just a global walkout and probably a whole lot of death and destruction. We had Roger Hallam on, the founder of Extinction Rebellion. What a brave and brilliant man. We've had Peter Kamas on from NASA several times. He got arrested because, you know, they, he and some scientists chained themselves to a building to try to bring attention to it. And people are trying, that's for sure. Just seems like the momentum. It reminds me of that meteor and don't look up. It's just headed this way. Did you see that when you said people are don't want unhappy news? I felt that that film brilliantly captured how that stupid show, which was done with Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry, how they wanted to be cheerful, even though the, we were looking at a planet-killing comet. Yeah, look, I, I really enjoyed Don't Look Up. I thought Adam McKay absolutely nailed the the, the issue around the sort of uh, collective denial, the head in the sand sort of attitude, and, and using the metaphor of the of the meteor striking to the planet. So it was a clever twist, I thought, on the on the traditional problems of representing climate change, because it is this this phenomenon caused by human activities that is playing out over generations, even that temporal problem of you can always put it off because it's somebody else's problem in the future. Um, and also spatially, you know, that the impacts of climate change are, are now visible everywhere, but they are always, uh, as we say in the book, it's, it's always possible to sort of distance. It's always a problem for a distant other if you're lucky enough to be in sort of an affluent part of the world, you can you can look at these climate disasters as sort of spectacles on your iPhone or whatever, um, and and offer thoughts and prayers, but that's about as far as it goes, sort of thing. So there is this problem with climate change, the the, the sort of biophysical nature of it, that it's always possible to distance yourself from from what's happening, and that plays into the hands, of course, of those groups in society who don't want anything done about uh, the problem. Until it hits you, we just had a monster hurricane, Ian, who wiped out southwest Florida. And, of course, they're trying to talk about rebuilding it, which would be insane. And it's only going to get hotter. The water's going to get warmer. We still have a whole lot of hurricane season here. Ian came all the way up to New England like six days later. It was blowing, still blowing 50 miles an hour and raining and hung around for about five or six days. There was the other hurricane that hit Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. Yeah, everything you hear is the first time ever, highest record. I think we're going to run out of fresh water first, but even if you're super wealthy, and so you might be on the highest floor of the Titanic, so the water gets you last. Christopher, do you think anyone will be able to survive it? Because if the civilization collapses, you're not wealthy anymore if, if you have $5 billion in stock. That's an imaginary construct by human minds it's not a real life physics-based asset like water or food yeah it's it's sort of interesting to ponder what goes through the, the thought processes of of the mega wealthy i guess uh there is I'm trying to put myself in their shoes i i imagine they can think well we're going to be somehow immune from this because we've always been immune from problems we've got enough money and resources to sit behind the gated community or in the bunker or get on the spaceship or whatever the analogy is that um, we'll always be safe. And I think there's just the beginnings of a realization that 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 that's not going to be the case. And you know, you you hear you read about these tech billionaires buying up property in South Island of New Zealand. Um, 
and and of course there was that billionaire space race a year or two ago um so there is this sort of mythology of escape you know um but I think, you know, uh, there is a growing realisation that perhaps this is going to come back and bite. And perhaps that explains some of the responses of, of senior executives and, and, and these sorts of people. Those who've, who've done, the, done the sort of the flip, they've had this sort of um, realisation that climate change is real and perhaps it's not going to impact them, but it's going to impact their kids. And we certainly found that a lot in the interviews we did with senior managers, this uh, focus on uh, leaving a legacy, uh, their children, future generations, that sort of thing often tips some of these people over to a sort of uh, almost a 180 degree turn. You know, I used to work for a, a big oil company, but now I can realise what's happening and I need to take action to make the world better for my kids sort of thing. So perhaps that's that's something that's happening a bit more broadly now. If you have a bunker and you think you're going to live through this, once this thing collapses, your security forces are going to just take over and why would they take orders from a pasty old white guy? Because he's not really the true power anymore. I've heard from people who do consulting on futurists that they've met with some of these people. I can't mention the names, some of the biggest names, families, blah, blah, blah. But that was their number one concern. How do we maintain control of our security forces once it collapses? Because why do they need us? And my friend had no answer. It's commonsensical, isn't it? I mean, that everything is sort of linked in social structures. And once you start to pull the threads of um, the life support systems that we rely on on the planet, once they start to fray, I mean, everything else starts to collapse. Uh, and, and my own take is that um, the sort of interconnected global societies that we've created, global economy we've created, and we saw this with COVID, it was very clear, um, it's not as resilient as we often assume. We've seen this with supply chain disruptions and other things that, uh, you know, once uh, power grids go out, water supply starts to fail, um, rules and regulations start to be questioned, everything starts to fall apart very, very quickly. And we lack, I think, as, as, a, as a sort of an advanced technological species, we lack the resilience that we, we often think we have. This, of course, is magnified many times uh, greater for developing economies. And, and, and we're seeing this now with nations that don't have the huge financial resources and infrastructure to sort of adapt to the climate crisis. Uh, but I think it's interesting how when we see these big extreme weather events, which have been amplified by climate change, how politicians and, and corporate leaders as well sometimes frame the response to those impacts um, and we've seen this in Australia. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it in the US. Um, Ex-President Trump would probably be a good example with the fires where it's now is not the time to talk about climate change is the typical response. Or it's not climate change. We just need to rake the forest, you know, stop the fires type thing. So there's this conscious sort of discursive response to the critique that comes from an extreme weather event where communities are saying, well, our town's burned to the ground or we've been hit by a Category 5 hurricane. This is clearly not natural. Let's do something about climate change. And politicians respond with, now's not the time. Um, you know, you're, you're um, upsetting people. We shouldn't talk about climate change now. But as we say in the book, well, if, if that's not the time, when is the time to talk about climate change? Because it doesn't get any more relevant, I would think, than the aftermath or during um, one of these climate-fueled extreme weather events. Sounds like the gun issue, too, where we have the automatic weapons and assault rifles. And they say now it's too soon. But like with climate change, we have a mass shooting every day. So that basically means that you'll never be able to talk about it. 
Yeah, indeed. And uh, it's interesting, the parallels there between um, the, the terrible situation you have in the US with, with gun laws and, and, and school massacres and, uh, and, the, and the response to climate impacts. It's, it's actually quite similar in a way, as you point out, that uh, those in positions of power um, don't want people to engage with a policy debate um, that threatens vested interests, whether it's the National Rifle Association or it's ExxonMobil. You know, this is this is how the politics is sort of constructed. And that's really what we're trying to get at in the book is to unpick how the politics of climate change has been organised in certain ways such that nothing really changes. There's lots of talk, there's lots of commitments to net zero by 2050 or whatever it might be. Um, lots of focus on a particular company being a green leader. But in the, the sum of things, that doesn't amount to anywhere near the level of change that we need to avert the worst impacts of a climate crisis. You're a human, I would say someone who studies human culture. From a human being point of view, are we not really designed to deal with the problem of this magnitude and, and the subtle complexities, sort of an invisible thing, CO2, that we're better suited to outrun the tiger or if the house is on fire, the fire department comes running in bravely. It's like our brains and our behavior, and then we've constructed societies based on distraction and denial. You throw all that in, and it's just we're getting what we see. It's like that's the cocktail. That's the recipe for this sort of ignorance and ignoring it all. Yeah, look, it is a perfect storm of human psychology and, and political economy, I guess, and we, we think about it that way. I'm always a little bit wary of simply saying, well, it's human nature, this is the reality, because it's clearly um, a big part of the, of the puzzle is not so much psychology, but it's the particular political economy we've created. Um, and And... There are technological responses that we all know about in terms of decarbonisation that we could implement, uh, as Michael Mann points out, and others have pointed out. You know, it's it's not a technological problem; it's a political problem. And we could, for instance, uh, as a global society, come together, and um, the leaders of the world would throw massive resources, as they did during the global financial crisis and the COVID pandemic, throw massive resources at an industrial scale decarbonisation strategy. Um, that would focus on, you know, massive investment in renewable energy and battery storage. Um, the, the prohibition, essentially, the legislative prohibition of fossil fuel extraction and use. I mean, obviously, that would have to be phased in, but that would be a very different response. I mean, all the responses we've had from governments, even the Biden administration recently with their current legislation, um, is very much a voluntarist supply side sort of response. You know, we'll provide incentives to business to do this and we'll provide incentives to consumers to buy green products, etc. But for government to actually intervene in a mandatory sense to regulate the, um, uh, sorry, the, the demand side is what we've got to, to regulate the supply side, uh, that would be quite significant um, and have a much greater impact. You know, it would basically be governments saying to, to economies, we need to radically decarbonise, this is an emergency, let's do it now. Uh, and force that change. And again, you saw I mentioned the global financial crisis, COVID, but also the World War II analogies is quite opposite, I think. Um, you know, how countries like the US and others, the Allied forces responded to the threat uh, of Nazi Germany in World War II was a, a full-scale wartime mobilisation, which involved significant coercion, truth be told, um, but that was necessary in the circumstances. Well, I keep saying, and I'm not the only one, that we need a Marshall Plan, a global Marshall Plan, as if an asteroid was coming, 
And then to turn that into sort of a feel-good opportunity for the world, but also a multi-trillion dollar economy, potentially, because all of that new green energy, jobs, great jobs, and there will be a momentum and a scale created. Yeah, totally. And there are um, business leaders in Australia and elsewhere who clearly do see the upside possibilities of um, wholesale transformation towards green energy. Uh, So we have a, a... uh, corporate leader here, a guy called Mike Cannon Brooks in Australia, who leads a company called Atlassian, um, which is an IT company. But they're investing massively in um, solar energy and talking about the export of solar electricity to Singapore and Southeast Asia through um, DC current cables under the the Timor Sea. So they would basically produce the electricity through renewable energy and then export it. Uh, we have another uh, business leader here, uh, Andrew Forrest, who runs a a company called Fortescue Metals, and they are very focused on the possibilities of green hydrogen uh, and talking about multi-billion dollar new industries emerging. So that's all entirely possible. Um, but the problem is we can't just rely on uh, isolated instances of uh, these individuals sort of coming up with ideas. It needs to be also driven at a policy level, um, as you say, sort of a Marshall plan uh, to, to drive that transformation because we have literally got less than a decade to reinvent a global economy, uh, a low carbon or zero carbon global economy um, to avert the harm that's coming. And even if we started today, there's a momentum because it's not like turning a switch off. The planet's gigantic and as brilliant as some of the scientists are, we're still in very unknown, uncharted territory for models. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's too late to avoid climate change because we're seeing the impacts right now. We're already living through um, pretty pretty catastrophic impacts, as we talked about. Uh, the the science, the latest IPCC report suggests that average global warming now we're 1.2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels. Uh, and as you say, there is a momentum built into the emissions um, that we are currently emitting that will lead to future warming. So, you know, it's it's very hard to see how we'll avoid not exceeding 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial uh, or possibly two degrees. So, you know, um, yeah. Too late to avoid climate change, but how bad do we want it to get? Do we want to go to 2.2, 2.5, 3, 4? Um, uh, this isn't a linear relationship. The harms become exponentially worse as we, we move up that average warm um, track. Uh, so it's it's harm minimization. Uh, it's That's what we're at. We've got to basically embrace radical dramatic change to avoid likely catastrophic implications in the future. And in this moment, emissions are dramatically increasing, going in the other direction. Yeah, well, that that is the depressing thing, I guess, because when we were in the COVID pandemic, in fact, when we started writing the book, well, we started writing it and literally, bang, COVID started in uh, early 2020. And so uh, the three writers, we were basically corresponding um, on online for much of the writing process. But there was these initial reports about, you know, with the start of the pandemic, the borders locking down that... Um, uh, emissions seem to be plateauing or reducing globally, and a lot of that was related to reductions in transport, I think. Um, but since since the sort of the borders have reopened, the emissions have ramped right back up again um, with a vengeance. And even the dirtiest of the fossil fuels, coal, which uh, at one stage, probably a year, year and a half ago, suggestions were coal was on the outer. Um, it's It's now back in vogue, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, coal-fired electricity still seems to be um, a very significant uh, uh, player in the problem that we've got. 
Uh, and this, despite all those pledges to net zero that we saw, you know, even from the oil companies, um, you know, so we, it's interesting. There's always these sort of waves of optimism and then, ah, oh dear, we're back to where we started again sort of thing. But hopefully, hopefully um, people are slowly starting to wake up. And uh, it's clear to me that, you know, action is being taken uh, in both in the national economies and in business. The problem is that it's not the level of action that we need. We need to really ramp it up um, by levels of magnitude. Do you think perhaps this is the most hopeful take that it has to be super catastrophic and then it'll finally be like the human race will band together, that it'll have to get much worse. And then, of course, there'll be a momentum on that before we finally have to deal with it like it, we are forced to deal with it. Yeah, it's, it is a sort of a bizarre optimism, isn't it, to hope for an extreme weather event of such magnitude that um, even the forces of denial and delay will finally um, change. Uh, I, I did think that at one stage. I thought when... Superstorm Sandy hit New York City and, and New Jersey. Uh, was that 2012? I think it was. Um, you know, the, the heartland of global capitalism, you know, Lower Manhattan, Battery Park, and it was all underwater. And Bloomberg came out with that um, that headline, it's global warming, stupid. Um, I thought, yeah, this is the moment when the world changes. And it seemed for a week or two that President Obama was going to do something and that, you know, it was going to be a a public announcement that, you know, this is climate change and we're going to change the way we, we do things. But then it reverted back to, to business as usual again. So every time I see a, a catastrophic uh, extreme weather event that breaks all the records, um, I think, well, maybe this is the moment. But it, it, it is amazing how uh, nothing much significantly changes. The song remains the same and on it goes sort of thing. And again, this is the sort of the conundrum sociologically I'm sort of interested in in the book that try and explain how does that return to business as usual? How is that maintained? Because that's something that requires work. It requires effort on the part of those who don't want to see um, decarbonisation a reality. And so that's what we're trying to sort of unpack a bit in the book. You know, what are the actual processes and discursive strategies that big oil companies and and sympathetic governments and conservative media employ to push back against the need for real climate action. Well, here's a question from the earth uh, being channeled. It's a radical question, but is the earth much better off without 99% of us around? Oh, gee, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know how to respond to that because you look at, at what human societies uh, are doing to the natural environment um, and primarily the wealthy parts of the planet, you know, the, the, the top 1% of the world's population consume the most resources. Uh, it's basically affluence, not population. that's driving most of the environmental degradation that we're seeing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm always wary of that sort of um, Thanos-type uh, response um, because I think, you know, the problem is really around the, the inequality it's the inequality of consumption that we see in our global population. And, and, and that's, ex that's really accelerated over the last 40 or 50 years. There's that, that, that marvellous point that Naomi Klein makes that, you know, the political realisation of climate change in the late 80s just happened to coincide with the philosophy of neoliberalism, you know, and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and, and everything since. And, and that's a political philosophy that says we don't want government, we don't want um, anybody intervening, we just let markets and corporations rip and good things will happen. Well, that became dominant 
hegemonic, if you want, at exactly the same time that politicians woke up to the realities of climate change. And that really is terrible timing because that was the point in the 70s and the 80s when we really needed to start taking action on climate. And because of that belief in neoliberalism and the power of fossil energy, uh, you know, the, the powers that be didn't. And so we're sort of 40 years late to the, to the party. But I don't think it's really a problem of, of human population. I think it's a problem of uh, the in inequitable consumption of, of natural resources. Uh, and, and we see that today, you know, don't have to look very far in terms of who's burning the most carbon on the planet. You have children, obviously. Yes, yes, we do, yes. How do you feel about them some nights when you might lay awake knowing all you know and the future they will inherit? Yeah, look, it, it is it is tough. Um, and particularly when they're younger, I guess, you have to sort of, I think you have to frame what you're saying and, and perhaps not talk in such explicit terms. But uh, our daughter's in her 20s, our son's in his early 20s. Uh, and so they're at a stage now where they're actually quite aware of of the climate crisis um, and, and sort of engage with um, jobs and careers uh, that are in that space as well. So I think one of the ways you can deal with the sort of the psychology, the eco-anxiety of the climate crisis is to get busy and get active and involve yourself in, in activities that try to um, change what's happening. Um, so once you're aware of climate change, I think you almost have to become active in that space. Otherwise, it can become quite um, psychologically damaging. Um, and so a lot of the people I know in this space uh, are either involved in sort of climate activism or climate education um, or trying to um, affect public attitudes on this issue. And that's, a, I think, a great way of avoiding um, the, the more dramatic or depressing aspects of eco-anxiety. And I am heartened by the young people because they, even the really young, seem to understand this. I've talked to guys like 10, 11 years old, and obviously the 15, 18, 17 college kids. They are fully aware, no denial. They're just looking for leadership and avenues. But they feel and they see and they understand what's coming. Yeah, totally. And I think that's why um, movements like Fridays for Future or the, the school climate strikes are particularly uplifting. And I I do a fair bit of photography in my spare time. And so I've, I'm often shooting climate protests or environmental sort of issues. And I have to say, um, photographing the, the big school climate strike in Sydney uh, a couple of years ago was a particularly uplifting experience because you had 100,000 kids uh, in the streets posters demanding action and there was a real feeling of of solidarity and and collective um support and strength uh driving for that change and it that does give you some hope uh that um there is a groundswell of opinion that's moving and it's the young that are driving that we have a lot of young people that listen what are some of the things that they could do wherever they are to become a part of the momentum part of the solution Part of the new world? I think um, the, the number of things. One is to sort of reach out to, to local groups wherever you are that are engaged in climate activism, and that might be the Fridays for Future type scenario or, or Extinction Rebellion or, or other groups, whatever groups, you know, um, that, that you have accessible to you. I think the politics is really critical to be involved in and trying to shape how um, that we that we basically get leaders 
at a political space at local, state and federal level who, who recognise the urgency of the climate crisis. This is the biggest issue we will face as a species and we need leaders at all levels of government and in business who really get this issue and are willing to put it front and centre first on the agenda of, of policy change. So if you can be involved in that in terms of, um, you know, activism, uh, your careers, your jobs, uh, the education, and also just communicating with others in your local context about how important this issue is, fighting back against this sort of um, climate fatigue where people don't want to talk about this issue, even acknowledge it. That is very important, I think. Um, so those, those are some issues, I think, that ways in which uh, young people can get involved. And I think it'll, it ultimately can be quite uplifting to feel like uh, you're involved in uh, shaping what is, as I keep saying, the most important issue we will face in our lifetimes. And is in action the great antidote to hopelessness? Yeah, I think so. I think being active, being involved, that that can help significantly in overcoming that that you know gut wrenching fear of uh, there is no hope we're we're doomed type thing. So yeah, I, I like everybody. I go through phases. As I keep saying, you know, when I'm doom scrolling through Twitter every morning, it can get quite over overwhelming. But then, you know, bounce back and um, write an op-ed or do a class and see, you know, have people come and say that was that was really worthwhile. I didn't know that that was helpful. That does help me in terms of feeling like, well, at least I had an impact there. That's great. So we move on. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.